It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Society sends clear messages about what a person is supposed to look like. And when we don't conform, there's a discrimination that takes place that we seldom talk about. Today's guest, Kate Mann, sheds light on the social stigma of obesity and teaches us how to face and manage fat phobia. Kate is an associate professor of philosophy at Cornell University. She's the author of the books, Down Girl and Entitled. Her new book is Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Jane. Kate, society, the media in particular... It sends a very clear message about how we're supposed to look. What happens to us when we repeatedly receive the same messages? So I think many people, girls and women in particular, are constantly being told to shrink ourselves and really that we can never be thin enough and that we should be ashamed of our bodies if we are fat. And for those listeners who don't know, I use the word fat as a merely neutral description of some bodies like mine. Uh, I use it much like we use the word short or tall or for that matter, thin. So it's not a word that I regard as pejorative or negative or judgmental. But yes, I think those messages really tell people that fatness is something to be ashamed of and that it's something we can control. And we know that those messages are very harmful and stigmatizing and also false because they involve people trying to perpetually shrink their bodies in ways that don't tend to work in the long term. How strong do you think this stigma around obesity is? I think it's very strong. I think we see it in education. I think we see it in the workplace. I think we see it in the healthcare system in a particularly harmful way. So we know that fat patients just aren't getting the same level of care as thin patients and will often go to a doctor and be told to lose weight while their real problems go undiagnosed. So in the book, I look at stories of women who went to the doctor with cancer and the true cause of their symptoms were missed because they were living in larger bodies. So they were just told to go lose some weight, get some exercise, eat right. And uh, in one case, the diagnosis was only garnered through a second opinion. In another case, the person tragically died because she didn't receive adequate care in time to treat her endometrial cancer. And this isn't mere anecdata either. We also see that people who are classified as obese are 1.65 times more likely to have serious undiagnosed medical conditions upon autopsy. So endocarditis, lung carcinoma, things which may have killed them that weren't getting diagnosed during their lifetime. Are medical professionals becoming more aware of this type of treatment? 
I think there's been a modest increase in awareness because anti-fat bias is being talked about a little more openly thanks to the brilliant work of not only fat activists in the early 2000s like Keith Harding and Marion Kirby, but also uh, figures who are speaking out about it very visibly and uh, audibly now. But it's still an enormous form of bias that um, we see isn't really implicit bias either, it's often explicit bias. So physicians will actually tick the box that says they're less willing to help a fat patient, regard fat patients as a waste of their time, and that fat patients are more likely to annoy them. So the bias is still very real, unfortunately. And we have some evidence that in general in the population, anti-fat bias is the only form of bias that is actually increasing when it comes to the implicit side of things. And it is a form of explicit bias that appears to be decreasing the most slowly out of all the ones the researchers from Harvard studied. What is the research telling us is that the root cause of obesity? And, and I ask that because people often think when someone's an alcoholic or an addict that it's something they're choosing, but we now know mm-hmm. that it is a disease. Is it the same case with obesity? Is it always a choice? So I don't view obesity, quote unquote, as a disease. I prefer the word fatness, which is much less stigmatizing. And it's certainly not a choice. We know that most people who are fat really try to lose weight and often do so in the short term through diet and exercise. But the weight comes back really inexorably for the vast majority of people. So big meta-analyses show that when people diet and exercise, they tend to regain the weight in between a third and two-thirds of cases, they'll end up heavier than they started. And when it comes to why people are fat, a lot of the answer is genetics. So upwards of 70% of the variation in the human population that we find in terms of body mass is due to genetics. So that makes weight just a little bit less heritable than height. Now, of course, there are also other factors such as the food environment, such as common illnesses, medications, such as a history of trauma can also contribute to weight gain. But what these factors have in common is that they're unchosen. So yes, this is something which I regard as typically not someone's choice. And frankly, even if it were their choice, I think it would be a valid one. But most fat people are not choosing to be fat. I'm someone who has struggled with my weight my entire life. I am a yo-yo dieter. Mm -hmm. And I was a, a chubby child, a young girl who dealt with it. And it's interesting because I could be 110 pounds now, or I can be 170 pounds, and I still see myself as that fat little girl. The self-esteem mm-hmm. and, and the the way that we view ourselves it, it really stays with us no matter what our external body looks like. Totally. Yeah, this is a really pernicious way that weight stigma follows people throughout their lifetimes. Oftentimes, no matter what our weight, we don't feel good enough. And it's an interesting point because what I try to show in the book is that weight stigma does harm nearly everyone. So especially girls and women who are being told don't gain weight or else and who often do have a history of in some cases, disordered eating or even full-blown eating disorders in their past um, because of that stigma. Often, it's a pretty direct result of being put on diets and told they're overweight. That's one of the biggest triggers, um, although, of course, there are 
also other reasons why these uh, mental illnesses develop. But what I would say is that for people who are larger, the world literally doesn't accommodate our bodies. So there's an extra layer, an extra pointiness to fat phobia in society, which is that we face all of these spaces that really don't accommodate us, don't fit us, and that we face belittling and harm when we're just trying to exist in public. So it's an issue that affects everyone, but I think it affects fat people particularly badly. You mentioned what a person faces when going for medical care. What about in the professional environment? Does it impact the way a person moves up the corporate ladder? Yes, absolutely. So endless research shows that people are discriminated in uh, in the workplace on the basis of their body size in really dire ways. One study compared a thin woman, a fat woman, a thin man, and a fat man for a range of employment opportunities. And these were a diverse range of opportunities, everything from a lecturer to a salesperson to an administrative assistant to a manual laborer. And surprise, surprise, the thin man was judged the most suitable employee for every job opportunity, and the fat woman was judged the least suitable candidate. And there was no difference between their CBs. They were just rotated between the participants. So this shows that Workplace discrimination in terms of hiring practices is very real. Now, in terms of promotion and compensation, we also see that in the um, when it comes to how much uh, people are actually being paid, millennial women who are very thin earn about $40,000 more than their very fat female counterparts. So that's a massive annual average wage gap just based on body size. So everything you described It really makes a person who is struggling with weight easily manipulated by all of this external messaging. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We have massive vulnerabilities and insecurities in this area, which the weight loss industry, uh, which will be worth $400 billion globally by the year 2030, it exploits, it preys upon us by telling us that this next diet will be different or you don't really need to eat, you just need to drink this vitamin water or you need this fancy overpriced salad delivery kit. So really this is affecting people's ability to make sober, serious judgments about what will work for them and their bodies and represent a good investment for them. And most times Dieting and taking appetite suppressants is really a short-term way of shrinking your body, but the evidence that the weight comes back is so hard to deny that I would argue this is usually not something people should be sinking their time, their money, and their energy into. It would be better saved for other things. So when we're trying to navigate our weight issues, and we're getting all of these external messages, and and those messages are are really causing us to feel like we're worthless and, and we're less than. How do we combat this? How do we turn this all around so that we can have a better chance of success in life? Mm, yeah, that's it's very tricky because some of this is beyond our control. Having a different attitude obviously won't combat a doctor's discrimination against you. And part of what fat activists often do is help people practice forms of self-advocacy that can be useful in the social context where confidence won't really make a difference, but self-advocacy can. 
So going to the doctor's office and saying, I'm not interested in being weighed. I want a form of care that is weight neutral or weight inclusive, given there's no good evidence that trying to shrink myself will work or improve my health long term. So you mentioned um, a moment ago, Joan, your own experiences with yo-yo dieting. And there is um, unfortunately evidence that going up and down in weight repeatedly which is known as weight cycling, can be really bad for our health. So saying to a doctor, look, if I just go in for yet another diet and reduce my weight, that's going to be temporary, and I don't want to engage in weight cycling, which will harm my cardio, uh, cardiovascular system, my metabolic health, my immune system, my mental health, what can you give me that you would recommend for a thin patient with the same symptoms? and the same kinds of needs. So that self-advocacy is a piece of it. But I also think that there is a kind of possibility of thinking of ourselves in how we uh, go through the world and how we exist in our bodies that I call body reflexivity. So this is an alternative to body positivity and neutrality where I think body positivity is a good starting place for many people and I certainly don't want to begrudge someone that entry point into body liberation if they um, find it useful. But I find it a bit in the vicinity of toxic positivity. So being relentlessly positive about your own body can be a tough thing to do in a world that is so fat phobic and so fraught with body image issues and pernicious body norms. Um, and I find body neutrality a better alternative, but being purely neutral about our bodies can be a bit lackluster, a bit one. So body reflexivity is a way of thinking about your body where I say, my body is for me, your body is for you, and our own perspective on our body is the only one that matters. And to me, that takes the sting out of some of the world's judgments because if my body is for me, if it's my home, if I'm the denizen of a body that is my vehicle to get around the world with, it's easier to think of my body as something that really does serve me in so many ways, regardless of what it looks like. How do we get this message to our children, young girls in particular? You know, I always say I would hate to be young today because when I had my struggles mm -hmm. years ago, you know, maybe I saw a Glamour magazine or a, we had less TV channels and so the stimulus wasn't as much. But today, you can't get away from it. These messages are there continually 24-7. And, you know, I, I just can't yeah. imagine what it's like for these children today. It's such a good point, Joan, because it, we really can't protect children from these fat phobic messages. I think that's just not realistic. So one book that I think is terrific for parents that I recommend to everyone, really anyone navigating this space who has young children in their life, um, which is many, if not most of us, is Virginia Soul Smith's book, Fat Talk, Parenting in an Age of Diet Culture. And that book makes the argument that we really need to be having ongoing conversations with children, which say... Fat is not a bad word. It's not bad to be a larger person. It's not bad to be fat. If they say, mom, I'm worried I'm fat, the conversation can go, I really hear that worry and I'm sensitive to it, but let's think about the cool fat people we know. Let's think about people who are fat and brilliant, fat 
and kind, fat and funny, fat and all sorts of positive qualities that will just insulate the child from thinking this is the worst possible thing you can be, rather than having a really weight-inclusive attitude in the house that we all come in different shapes and sizes, people really don't have a lot of control over their weight, and we should be embracing the diversity of shapes and sizes that we come in as a normal and beautiful part of human diversity. So I think that that message can be helpful. It certainly won't mean the child is then exposed to fatphobic messages, but hopefully they can then learn to push back against them and be critical of them. Well, and something positive, you're starting to see people in the entertainment industry that are more body diverse. So hopefully that voice will continue to get louder. Totally. I share that hope. The book is Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia. Kate, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? Uh, yeah, thanks for that. I am nominally still on Twitter or X at Kate underscore man. I also have a substack called More to Hate, kate.man at substack.com. Um, and I am on Instagram too at Kate underscore man. Kate, in our final moments, what would be the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I would say that it can be really difficult when our culture has, again, gaslit us into thinking that there's a thin person waiting inside us, wanting to emerge, ready to emerge victorious, to really stand in solidarity with larger people. But many of us believe that kindness is important, and I would ask everyone to extend kindness and inclusivity to everyone regardless of their body size and to really stand up for people who are larger than you and who face greater challenges from fat phobia. So that's a lesson that Aubrey Gordon put on her Instagram as a kind of New Year resolution uh, message or to encourage her followers to think about this. And I think it's just a brilliant challenge to people to think, how can I be kinder? How can I, as she put it, show up for people who are in larger bodies rather than trying to align myself with thinness? How can I be someone who is practicing kindness towards everyone, which should have no size limit? And I think that's such a wonderful way to leave this conversation, kindness and inclusivity. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Joan. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.